Today on Government Matters, the Navy charts a new course for diversity and inclusion, the leader of Task Force One Navy on the mission ahead. A new leader and a new lease on life for the Pentagon's cyber supply chain initiative. The new CMMC board chairman tells you what's coming. And the number one story of the week for federal employees, more vaccines, more leave and more safety measures. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Navy's new Task Force One Navy makes more than 50 recommendations to cut and eliminate inequality and bias. Those recommendations range from easy to difficult and from quick to implement to long term. Rear Admiral Alvin Halsey is Commander of Navy Personnel Command, Deputy Chief of Naval Personnel. He's Director of the Task Force. Admiral, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me today. How did you set up this task force to get these recommendations, and how did you do the work to arrive at those recommendations, sir? And Francis, thanks for having me this morning. The uh, task force stood up around four real lines of effort. Again, the uh, charge we got from CNO was to look at things in society, and military to detract from Navy readiness. So to be clear, this is about Navy readiness. Uh, CNO's campaign design that just came out, uh, navigation plan came out, talked about uh, sailors, readiness, capacity, and the capability. So right now, clearly make sure our sailors are ready and they feel good about who they are and support the team is important. So we broke down through four main lines of effort. First with the Navy Recruiting Command, the second one with the uh, Navy Personnel Command looking at talents management and recruiting. Then the Navy Education Training Command that looks at professional development. And then uh, finally, we did a, a, a fourth one, which really got into innovation in STEM. And then uh, we did a catch-all miscellaneous category that kind of went out into the community, our sailors, our civilians, and kind of pulled out information. So we got most of our information from focus groups, listening sessions, which are very, very key uh, to our understanding what our sellers and civilians were thinking, and then uh, some surveys. So we pulled out that data together and came up with our recommendations. You said uh, when this rolled out a few weeks ago that each listening session had the same key themes, respect, empathy, training, and skepticism. The first three seemed self-evident. What, what were people skeptical of in these listening sessions? So we got a chance at every time to ask a, a couple of questions. Do you think something's going to happen? Because we could feel it from our from the folks who were talking to us. They weren't really clear uh, if we're going to really make a difference. So every time we asked that question, it was very, uh, not alarming, but people said, no, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to really, you're not going to change anything. So again, that's where that skepticism came from. You mentioned the four lines of effort. How would you measure the success of implementing the recommendations in those four lines of effort, sir? So one thing we're going to do to make sure to go back to the skepticism piece, because uh, a lot of times we hear the comment, hey, we've done this before, you've had, you know, task forces before, but this is different because we're kind of aligned with the Navy's uh, cultural excellence campaign. So if you look at line of effort number four under that campaign, which is IND, we're nested under that piece there. So if you think about a campaign design, a war plan, if you will, uh, that is enduring uh, now, uh, every six months or so, we get a chance to go before our senior leaders in the Navy, most senior leaders, CNO and four stars, to give them an update on what we're doing. We're going to identify barriers, things we need help with, and they can actually give us some more guidance as we go forward. Over. 
Is it, is it possible to choose from among the 56 recommendations some that you think are more important to implement than others? Uh, maybe the ones that will address that skepticism or, or some other category of these recommendations, sir? Well, two things. Uh, I think, uh, first of all, all the, all the recommendations are very important to me and the team. I think if you were to look at the one that affects the Navy, uh, we're large our core values, adding the words and respect to our core values. We believe that respect is our true north. If you look at the task force uh, cover sheet, it shows a, a Navy compass, if we're a compass rose, and has the North uh, respect at the very top. Why? Because we believe that that's our foundation. Respect says that I see you. It says that I hear you. And with not, without respect, there can be no empathy. So we think that's a, a, the big moving part. Another thing that came up was uh, from a lot of the uh, listening sessions and some retired folks talk about accountability. And so sellers want to know what's the accountability piece, which goes back to that uh, cultural excellence campaign and kind of going back to four-star leaderships, telling them where we are and how we're doing with it. Also, one of the recommendations deals with a leader development framework. If you can think about a second, uh, for a second, from the standpoint of every um, uh, six months or so, uh, some TICOM, a type commander, 17 across the Navy, are going to CNO, CMP, tell them how they're doing from the standpoint of uh, building officers and leaders with character, competence, and connectedness. And so actually talk to the recommendations and talk to how they're doing. Admiral, are, are there some of these that you've either already started or that will be uh, fairly easy or quick for you to get underway? Yes, yeah, so as you look at the recommendations, uh, we have to have sure our metrics and our, and our outcomes and measures, but some of these we've already started. Uh, the Navy Personnel Command, with the standpoint of a, a board process, in fact, one of the first recommendations that came out uh, from uh, SecDef back in in uh, uh, July timeframe talked about removing photos from our board processes. And so one thing we want to make sure in our board process that we have uh, diversity across the board is that's at least more transparency. So we're, we're looking at that. That's a kind of one we already put in place. Uh, the uh, Navy Recruiting Command, how they view their, their sailors uh, and the civilians out there and bring folks in force, look at that whole person uh, a construct, make sure we can go and look at the whole person, not just a number or, or just a, uh, uh, a score and say, hey, what else do people actually bring to the table? We have about 30 seconds left, Admiral. Are there uh, some of these recommendations where you'll need help, say, from Congress, uh, from uh, somewhere outside the Navy in order to implement them? Well, just, I guess the first one you think about when we look at uh, whether we stand up additional you know, ROTC units, that's going to take extra money. It's going to take a lot of support. Uh, the boost program, which is the one we're bringing back, again, that's going to take some uh, support as well. But if I can leave you one thing, I think there's three things I wanted to see come out of this. One was a renewed sense of who we are as a Navy, as a people. Uh, the second was a profound understanding of the word respect. I think it's very clear. And finally, uh, what I want to see come out of this was action action that improves readiness across the force while using all the talents and skills and, and, and you know, what everyone brings to the table, right, of all who serve, all over the uniform. Admiral, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You can find a link to the Task Force One Navy recommendations at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, a new leader and a new lease on life for the Pentagon's supply chain efforts. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the chairman of the CMMC board on what's coming next. You're watching ABC7.
Welcome back to board that oversees the Defense Department's new cybersecurity supply chain requirements has a new leader. That board says it's listening to contractor feedback to chart its course forward. Carlton Johnson is chairman of the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Accreditation Body. Mr. Chairman, welcome. Carlton, thanks for coming on the program. What do you see as your role in guiding this body moving forward, sir? Good morning. Thanks for the opportunity to tell our story. I want to just say that I uh, want to call out thanks for all the people who've been helping us move this uh, forward. Uh, sitting in this role, my main job is to make sure that I'm standing up this organization to be uh, successful over time and space to make sure that we're able to deliver the capabilities that have been asked about uh, from us, from the Department of Defense and also from our constituents. Who are your constituents? Are they only in the Defense Department side? Are they in the industry side? How are you thinking about that concept of constituency? Excellent question. And for the moment, based off of the statement of work that we have with the government and our no-cost contract, our primary focus is the defense industrial base. So people who exist within the DIB uh, supply chain. That said, DOD has had conversations with outside entities, other governmental organizations. So I'd expect CMMC to expand beyond those borders over time. But my focus right now is the DIB. How are you listening to the DIB and using the information that they give you to make this program more effective for them and more effective for the department? Through a couple ways. One, uh, we have a series of town halls that we've been implementing. Uh, we've had uh, uh, one a month since uh, September, or I should say since December. And we are going to continue to gain and uh, provide input through those mediums. Additionally, we work hand in hand with the government uh, to communicate and educate what our requirements are in terms of being able to sustain this capability and to get their requirements put forward. Uh, lastly, to get the information from the DIB, uh, we've supported working groups over the last few, uh, at last year, and uh, we'll continue to do that as well. So a lot of opportunity coming forward to, to communicate and educate and get input from the DIB. I quote from FedScoop uh, a few days ago, the foundation of the CMMC will see some coming changes, its leaders said recently. What are those changes that are coming and how will they impact the DIB? So over the last few months, we've done a few things uh, to deploy this capability we've talked about. We've issued out approximately uh, 1,600 registered practitioners. Those are consultants or advisors who can help companies uh, get ready for CMMC. Uh, registered practitioner organizations, about 400 or so. And the big piece, the certified third-party assessors, the C3PAOs, about 400 of those are have been registered. And so all of those are in work to help move these, move this ecosystem forward. That said, we're deploying some additional things to include uh, licensed training partners and licensed publishing partners. And those are the people who will help us to create and identify additional instructors and uh, content so that the entire ecosystem will have learning material to prepare for CMMC. Uh, the last piece is what they're calling the CACO within our contract. Not able to talk much about that right now. It's still a work in progress, but the CACO will be separated out in, uh, before the end of the year, and we're still de defining how that will look with the DOD. What are the timelines that the members of the defense industrial base need to be aware of for hitting some of these marks that you're laying out, Carlton? So we are adhering to the Department of Defense timeline. Uh, pretty much the, the contracts that they have identified and issued and will continue to issue, we run right behind that so that we have the right capabilities and uh, competencies available to meet that demand. So everything that we're doing is based off of both the DOD schedule 
and the industry demand for this requirement. And we are going to remain agile and flexible to adjust to that. The broader message that I take away, Carlton, from your selection as chair and from the timeline that you're just laying out is this is something the defense industrial base needs to get used to, isn't it? There was a, a conversation kind of under the radar screen. You probably heard it, too, uh, where companies were wondering, is this really going to stick around? Is this something that the previous administration came up with that the new administration will decide not to move forward with? This is something companies really need to understand they need to move forward with, isn't it, sir? Well, absolutely. And as SolarWinds has shown us, uh, cyber attacks are nonpartisan. They don't care which side of the defense you stand on. They're looking at, the adversaries are looking at getting that content. And so I look at that as a United States issue versus a partisan issue. That said, I'm certain that the administration, the next administration and the ones subsequent to that, and the ones subsequent to that will be focused on cybersecurity because this is one of the most important things that we need to do to uh, strengthen the U.S. not only supply chain, but us as an American uh, nation to move forward. I will steal a word from the title of your organization, and that's maturity. Is there a point where this operation, where this, this process becomes mature and maybe self-perpetuating, or is this something that evolves over time and that, and that the requirements that companies will have to meet evolves over time? I think it's the latter. And I'll caveat that by saying over time and space, we do want to reach a certain level of maturity meaning that the entire defense industrial base has a level of cyber readiness that allows us to, to be successful at a, at a basic level, basic hygiene. That said, because the adversary is agile, because the threats change, we're going to mature to a certain level. When those conditions change, we'll have to reset. And hopefully that reset, if we do this right, that reset won't be as painful as it's been in the past. Carlton, thanks very much for joining me this morning. It's great to have you with me. Thank you. Up next, the number one story of the week. Lots of changes for federal employees as the coronavirus nears its one-year mark. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's new and what's next for telework, vaccines, and more. You're watching ABC7. Now, the number one story of the week, changes coming for the federal workforce. More federal employees are getting vaccines, more paid leave may be coming, and more safety measures are in place, thanks to a White House task force. To review it all, Jessica Clement, Staff Vice President of Policy and Programs for the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, and Joanna Friedman, partner at the Federal Practice Group. Folks, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Jesse, I start with you. What do you think out of all of the things that have happened for the workforce this week are the most important to pay attention to? Well, I think if we're talking about feds in the D.C. area, we probably need to take close look at the telework situation in a snow event, right? We are used to the government closing and you don't have to go to work that day. Well, we've all been teleworking for almost a year now. So sorry you have to work on a snow day now. Um, I think it's something that a lot of us are experiencing, myself included. Uh, that was obviously the uh, immediate thing. Also reconciliation, what's moving through the house, possibly for consideration next week, and how that affects federal employees. Joanna, welcome. It's good to have you back on the program. What do you think are the most important things for feds to watch as all of these things unfold? Sure, I think there's a couple issues this week that um, really stood out to me. 
first with the mask mandate that President Biden put into effect for all federal property, um, federal agencies are now empowered to actually take disciplinary action against federal employees who refuse to wear masks while they're at work. Um, so that certainly will be um, an issue to, to look at in, in the coming future as more employees return back to work. There is some exciting news for federal employees. OPM issued guidance this week stating that all federal employees now have the right to be able to take up to 12 weeks of parental leave as long as they have essentially worked in their position consecutively for at least one year and the child um, was born on October 1st, 2020 or thereafter. So that's very exciting news for federal employees. And lastly, I think um, an issue for all of us to look at is whether agencies are gonna be able to require employees to actually be vaccinated. They are now allowing federal employees to use eight hours of administrative leave and sometimes even more if they are going to obtain the vaccine. What do we know about what uh uh, agencies can do, Joanna, both in the mask mandate, what's the teeth behind that, and the requiring or encouraging employees to get vaccinated? Well, with the, the vaccine, the EEOC issued um, guidance back in December of last year that, that states that, in fact, an employer can require an employee to get vaccinated because it's not a violation of the American with Disabilities Act since in doing so, it, it's not requiring an employee to disclose information about a medical condition. And so the, the law as it stands now is that an employer is gonna be able to require an employee to get vaccinated. Um, certainly an employee will be able to request accommodation if they have a medical condition or perhaps a religious belief that precludes them from, from getting a, a vaccine. Jesse, are your members telling you that they have any level of anxiety about what their bosses might make them or, or imply that they must do before they can come back to the office? Not at this point, but I think we are all living in a time of heightening, heightened anxiety. And as agencies mandate masks and ask employees to get vaccinated, I certainly expect there will be some hesitation on many fronts because that's just what we're experiencing across the country. Jesse, you mentioned the legislation that Congress is looking to move. What's in there that might mean something to the federal workforce? Um, right now, the House Oversight and Reform Committee has approved its portion of the broader reconciliation bill. Francis, I often joke we can cover one piece of these segments and entire shows, and reconciliation is absolutely one of them. Um, but this piece of the broader reconciliation bill would allow up to paid leave for 15 weeks for federal employees if they get COVID, if they have to quarantine, if they are home taking care of children who are virtually learning, or if they're a caretaker for a family member and the usual caretaker can't come because of COVID. Joanna, from a legal perspective, well, the Justice Department has put out guidance uh, essentially saying what it believes its managers can and can't do. What do you expect to see as far as the questions that employees might ask of their managers or the issues that they might have with guidance? I, I know we haven't seen the guidance in some cases, so it's hard to predict, but is there a way to try to anticipate uh, a get out ahead of uh, some of the mandates or requests or requirements that might be coming? Yes, I, I think that if you're an employee that has a medical condition, 
um, that either limits your ability to wear a mask all day and or puts you in a high risk category to to have potential exposure to other people and 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 you know COVID in general, then you should be disclosing that information now and seeking accommodation because oftentimes it takes um, you know 30, 60, 90 days in order to get um, a reasonable accommodation or religious accommodation actually implemented. What's the best process for going about that, both from the employee perspective and the manager's perspective? Are, are there any uh, hurdles that the uh, that either side will have to go through, or is this the standard procedure that's existed uh, over time? Yeah, every agency has um, a process in place where typically there's perhaps a disability coordinator um, and or a designated HR official where you go to begin the process. And then there's what we call an interactive process between the agency and the employee where you do have to disclose um, information pertaining your medical condition and or your religious belief. Um, and then there will be some back and forth as to whether or not the agency is going to be able to implement an effective accommodation. And I think that's where the issue really lies, is we don't know exactly how that's going to shake out. Joanna Friedman, Jessica Clement, thanks both very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thank Francis. You. If you miss any episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our shows. When you get our pr daily program guide, you just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.